Vladimir Putin has signed signed a law that will make it possible for them to essentially nationalize all these planes from Western leasing companies. At some point, things just come down to force, right? You could say, hey, what you're doing is illegal. Ultimately, at some point, people are just like, all right, well, come and get me. Come fight me for it, right? And that's kind of what's happening here. Uh, it definitely is. Uh, here's, here's my gun. <laughs> Would you like to come get your airplane? That's what's happened. You're listening to the Struck Podcast. I'm Dan Blewett. I'm Alan Hall. And here on Struck, we talk about everything aviation, aerospace engineering, and lightning protection. All right, welcome back to the Struck Aerospace Engineering Podcast. I'm your co-host, Dan Blewett. On today's show, we're going to talk about Boeing executive pay, the issues going on with Russia, and now with Putin signing into law to potentially steal some planes. Uh, we'll talk about Joby, Volocopter, Lilium and their targets, and City Airbus making some new moves, uh, designating uh, Spirit Air Systems to make their wings of their aircraft. So, Alan, let's jump in here. Obviously, Boeing has been a, an embattled company in the last couple of years. Um, you know, the Netflix documentary recently highlighting a lot of those woes. But yet, like CEO Pay seems to do, they're continuing to churn out extremely high salaries uh, for executives. Um, obviously in the U S executive pay does not seem to be that tied to performance at times, right? There's even when companies are having terrible down years, CEOs are getting paid tens of millions of dollars. Uh, Alan, how do you feel about the compensation package for some of Boeing's top leadership? That's, that's kind of been reported on the news in the news cycle recently. And kind of getting some some raised eyebrows. Yeah, and the Seattle Times uh, has been on top of the story more recently, and uh, there's uh, it gets into this uh, atmosphere of, well, the CEO is making, this is throw out some numbers, like $10 million this year. And then the janitor is making $30,000, and there's a disparity between the janitor and the CEO. Uh, and then also going the other way, which is to saying, well, Boeing didn't have a great year, so why do you pay the CEO a bunch of money? I, I don't know if either one of those arguments make any sense uh, to, to find some people capable of running a corporation at that level. There's only a handful of people that could even do it. And they're going to be expensive to keep keep engaged. If you, if you don't pay them some sort of commensurate salary, they're going to walk. And, and, or you're going to have a, a maybe a lesser quality uh, group of people at the top. So the, the board of directors has a lot of say, obviously, in CEO salary, and so does the the uh, stockholders. There's there's means to control that if if they if they want to. And I think the board of directors at Boeing has been much more engaged in CEO salary and and monitoring that situation and, and determining you know what is real, what really should be done. But I I don't understand the um, where the press is going when they they make comparisons between people's salary. Yeah, I, I, so I'll, let me give you the, the sports analogy. The Lakers pay LeBron James an incredible sum of money, but they don't, probably don't pay the people who are selling popcorn there a lot of money. Does that mean anything about what we should be paying Le- LeBron James? I don't think so, because there's only a couple of Le- LeBron Jameses in the world, and I there's probably a handful of people that could actually do that Boeing CEO job. Don't you, don't you, isn't there a sort of an, I don't like using analogies, but there's a, a reasonable analogy of it's a skill set. I think the issue is when CEOs don't seem like the decisions they make 
matter as far as what they get paid. Like if you're going to get paid that much, I mean, obviously they can get fired after a couple of years, just like a professional athlete can, you know, get set on the bench, get released, get, you know, all that. But, uh, it's, it seems unclear when someone comes in, they get paid a vast sums of money to run this company and then they run into the ground or they just do an, a rather awful job, uh, or b- take it through a scandal. And then, eh, they just kind of leave with $40 million. You know, it's like they're locked in. They don't seem to really, I don't know. And I'm not saying that's the the example here with, with Boeing, but in general, that seems to be the, what are they getting paid for? Shouldn't they have a lower salary and more, much more heavily incentivized to actually do well? And you see this with athletes, I mean, to use that analogy, in their pre-contract year. So, you know, in baseball, before they're about to hit their free agent year, they really want to play well, right? And then when they get that big contract the next year, there's significantly less incentive to play well. Obviously, they still want to do well. That's why they're at the top of their game. Like their competitors, it doesn't just turn off, but there is definitely a difference, right? So I don't know. Do you get better performance out of a CEO if they have a million dollar base pay and 10 million in incentives to really turn a company around? I would imagine that you would rather than just here's 10 million whatever happens, happens. That's a good point. But if the Lakers have a bad season, LeBron still gets all of his money. And and, in the baseball analogy, I think is really interesting just because in baseball, you can look at individual stats, like a pitcher can have individual stats, so the team can be terrible. But the pitcher can have a really great year. And so you're trying to break the, the person away from this other larger organization doesn't that still apply kind of at the CEO level that we don't get to see the day-to-day activities of what the CEO is doing, whether it has an effect on the on the greater team, you don't know yet, but because it's it takes four or five years, just like they give a new coach of a baseball team four or five years to sort of get things rolling and get in place before they see if that system is working. I think a CEO is in a very similar position. It's going to take a couple of years to, especially for a company as massive as Boeing or Airbus, it would take a couple of years to, to enact the accounting changes, quality changes, approach to business, uh, approach to customers, before that can become enacted where a board of directors can make any real decision on massively changing salary. But in the day-to-day, I think the board of directors is probably watching closer than ever before to see if they're making changes in the right direction. And we may not be able to see the consequences as an outside observer, but you would think that the board of directors, particularly at Boeing at the moment, would be much more hands-on and and watching those things and expecting when they come to a a board of directors meeting that they're going to hear some of the initiatives that are going on and kind of give a thumbs up, thumbs down to them, right? I mean, wouldn't you envision that happening? I agree with you that it does take time for a lot of these changes to take effect, just like you said, with a, you know, sports manager, you can't turn around a losing team in a year, right? That just doesn't doesn't realistically happen. Same thing with the company. Um, I think where it gets confusing is is when you're giving like additional like stock options and additional awards, like a year or two in when the turnaround's not even close to coming to fruition. You know, like you have a team that's fifty and a hundred, uh, and then the second year they're sixty and a hundred, and you, the, the manager gets a big pay bump and some big award, like cash awards. Like that seems weird. Like maybe wait and those will vest when things actually start to get better. Um, and obviously the, the overall optics on CEO pay is that why has CEO pay risen such a dispropor- in such a disproportionate way compared to em- employee costs? 
their employee salaries. That's where, you know, I, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but it's been gone from what, like a hundred times the average employee, something like that back in like the seventies, eighties to well over a thousand times, you know, it's, it's, it's stuff like that where those numbers are probably wild, wildly incorrect, but it's been a disproportionate growth rate. Sure, sure. But I think if you looked at athlete salaries, I think you would see the same thing, particularly in baseball. If you if you look at single A baseball to major league baseball, there's a huge disparity. So it's that maybe 1% of the players, 2% of the players are probably getting more than 50% of the salary, probably closer to 75, 80% of the salary in some cases, like a Bryce Harper. Right. So if that distribution exists in an open free market like baseball or basketball or even football, I, that that same sort of um, organizational flow distribution is going to exist in business. It will. I mean, there, there's only a very small subset of people who want to be CEOs who want that who essentially give up their lives like Musk does on some level where he doesn't have any fi- real family life and it spends all his time running around between factories uh, so you're, 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 you have committed yourself to one thing and one thing only. That's how you achieve those massively high salaries or uh, you're giving up a lot. Right. And not many people want to do that male or female. I don't think it matters really. There's only very select few people in the world that can do it. So would they be, then be awarded a disproportionate amount of salary? I think the answer insistent, at least in the United States is yes. That has shown out in so many different instances. And um, so that's why I don't sweat these things. You know, Boeing and Airbus and all the other aircraft manufacturers will have to explain it to their boards of directors and to the stockholders. And if if they can't, then there will be a revolt and it'll change. But until such time, uh, it'll stay the way that it is. I know you and I have talked about uh, Nassim Nicholas Taleb's books and how he explains that our world is one of extremes where if you had two people and major league baseball is a great example. NBA is a great example uh, where if you had two people randomly chosen and their total salary was $20 million, what's the odds that it's, they each make $10 million or what are the odds that one makes $19.8 million and the other one makes, uh, you know, $20,000 playing basketball. It's, it's, it's that one. You know, if you look at all the, like I played professional baseball, I made, $7,000 $7,000 was my salary for a summer as a poor minor leaguer. So if you said you had two baseball players and they make a combined 20 million in salary, is it more likely that someone makes 10,000 in salary, you know, like in my bracket and another, and another player makes 19.99 million. It's much more likely that way because there's a huge sea of people like me who made 10,000 and a tiny proportion who make 20 million a year, right? There's very few people in the middle where they each make 10 million. That's the same thing with with book authors, with movie stars, with CEOs. It's this tiny hockey stick ascendance to the top of the pay scale. So I, I, I completely agree with you that it's not necessarily a fair system that, you know, the executive team makes double and they make double and, the, you know, as it climbs up the pyramid. Um, but it's also unclear when we're just using sort of like a comp a comp system like we do with home prices like you know you know your neighbor's house and your house are the same floor plan so his sells for 600,000 so you know you, you price yours based on that well mine's 600,000 you know plus we have a updated kitchen which they didn't have and this is this, this. so we're going to we're gonna price ours at 630 that's how it works and that's essentially what they're doing with CEO pay where it continues to go up um, but it's also not clear like that you know at least within sports 
there's a, and this might not be a great analogy, but I don't know. It's, it's hard to say, like, does 20 million in CEO pay, CEO pay accurately reflect their value to the company? And as that continues to go up, like, hey, I'm, I need to make 21 million because the Taco Bell CEO is making 21 million. And that's like the going rate for a, you know, a food brand CEO these days. Like, is that the best we can do? Or, or is there a way to say this is what this this position should be worth like you kind of calculate that with an engineer wouldn't you like you say we we can pay them 170,000 in salary because of x y and z but i'm not sure those metrics do those metrics exist for ceo pay i don't i don't know they seem so far out that it's hard to measure their value that's a that's a good question i do think there are metrics on ceo value versus pay like what they're generating for the company and what they're actually bringing home there there are metrics like that but i'm not sure how tightly correlated those are like if if you start doing a statistical distribution and looking at correlation there is it tightly correlated i don't know obviously if it's not tightly correlated then you'd have an argument to say hey wait a minute you're making way too much money the average like taco bell (laughs) taco bell ceo is making 20 million uh, so the CEO of Boeing should make thirty million. You know, it's a bigger, much bigger organization. It's not ratio like that, I don't think. But it does that does play into the stockholder uh, discussions. I'm sure at the at the sort of individual stockholder investor level, there would be a lot of scuttlebutt about that. I, I just don't know if that's helpful though. I mean, if your if your real goal is to drive your stock price of your Boeing or Airbus stock up, you know, I. I think having some confidence in the person that's, that's at the helm is probably important. Uh, but there's also a ticking clock. And if that clock gets close to you know, the alarm bell ringing, then, yeah, you may start pulling things away. You, you may make a, uh, a change there. I, I think what you're also addressing, Dan, is the sort of the golden parachute piece of this, which makes a lot of people upset but i'm not sure you could get a ceo to do that job or a person to do that job without having the golden parachute because you know you could be yanked away any moment and if if um uh, it's just like an athlete that gets caught in baseball that gets caught doping right so if you're making 20 million dollars as a baseball player and you get caught doping or accused of doping we'll just say it's accused and you get sidelined man your salary goes to zero Right. And a CEO that has been removed, like the previous CEO of Boeing, kind of got removed there. Where's he going to end up at? So he's going to be sitting out for three, four years doing nothing, not earning a salary, because that's the risk you take is that if you take on that job and you don't succeed in it, even if you do succeed, your lifetime in those jobs is not very long. Historically, it's not very long. I, when I worked at Raytheon Aircraft, which was formerly Beach, I think the lifetime of a CEO was like two years, maybe last, maybe a year in some cases. So there is high churn there, and you, you won't have people to take those jobs unless there's some sort of reward because you do get sidelined after you lose that position. And that's probably a another reason to have the high pay is that if you're at the top, you don't really like, you know, you get fired as a CEO. Are you going to go back and take a senior management position that's significantly lower than CEO after that? That's going to be a hard downward move, I would imagine. And so you're, you might be right where maybe you really need to earn, you know, because if you're a CEO in today's age for three years, you're going to take home probably between 30 and $60 million. So now like you hit the top and you're only, it's only downhill after there probably for most of them. Right. Um, so then maybe like you cashed out and that's your that's kind of your nest egg and now you're going to 
be a consultant or do something else that maybe it's kind of like the payoff for realizing that you're probably gonna have to pivot after that. And that's kind of the same thing with, with sports, you know, and so many athletes get in financial trouble because they make a huge amount of money before their 35th birthday, right? Or the 30th birthday in some cases. And then they're never going to make anywhere close to that in the rest of their life, unless they do have great investments or start some, some big business. But even then, I mean, how many times have you heard of an athlete starting a business that exceeds their, you know, nine digit salary, you know, a, a huge free agent contract? It's al- almost never, you know, like, yeah, you hear of like Derek Jeter doing well in, in post, I don't know what he's doing, but Al Rodriguez is doing well, obviously Tiger Woods has done well, but you know, Tiger Woods made a lot of money in addition to, you know, during his plan. I mean, he's a golfer, so he could be golfing till the day he dies potentially. But, um, yeah, most, most athletes, you haven't heard of an athlete starting a, a Dropbox, uh, you know, a, a unicorn business after the only one I know, Dan is the only one I know that it fills that fills that box hits a checkbox there. I think it's Shaquille O'Neal. I think he's the only one that I know of that has has made major money in sports and then afterwards probably made more money as an entrepreneur. But you don't hear that very often. Maybe LeBron too. I think LeBron's involved in a lot of things also. He's just still playing. But when LeBron finishes playing, I do think he has a business structure behind him. He's a smart guy. Uh, Shaquille is too, right? Shaquille's invested in some really interesting companies. And, and as a CEO, you know, that that's a really good point. If you're a CEO, you're probably in your 50s. So your 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 life cycle in business world is probably till you're 62, maybe. So you have a very small window of opportunity to make a whole bunch of money. You need to make it there. If you don't make it there, you, the opportunity is gone. You'll never you'll you'll retire without hitting those millions. That's that's opportunity lost. And if you're a good business person, you're not going to miss that. You're going to try to push the salary as much as you can because you can explain. I got a five-year window. If I, if I make a, if I make my mark, I'm a, I'm a billionaire. If I don't, I'm broke. So I don't know if we've settled anything. But we've had a good discussion about both sides of uh, CEO pay, but it, it's a complex issue for sure because they are the highest achievers. And I think the one thing we didn't touch on is that when you hire a CEO and you and you pay them, you say, hey, this is what we're this is what your salary is going to be you're paying for what they've done to become CEO, right? It's the same thing with a sports contract. You're paying them for what they've done in the past, hoping they'll do in the future. So to say that, you know, oh, you didn't earn your salary, like you earned it on the way up, right? That's essentially what you're doing. Um, Obviously, you'd like to continue to incentivize everyone. And obviously, like the founders of companies are probably the most incentivized because it's their baby. And I know a lot of, uh, you know, the best investors, they like having the owner founder heavily involved because they really want to see their, they're more emotionally invested than I just have 20 million in stock options that if my, if I get the stock price to hit this number, they vest and I get $20 million in my pocket, whether or not that's good for the company long-term. Cause that's another big criticism of some of the incentive packages that it can incentivize a CEO for short-term gains that might not be good for the long-term. And I listened to a podcast with the uh, American Express CEO on it. And he's an impressive guy. And he was saying that he made a lot of decisions like that, that he knew weren't as good for the company in the short term, but were good for the company long term. So he was doing things counter to the way some of these bad CEOs do it. He said, I wasn't going to hurt the company long term just to line my pockets or do what made me look good to the shareholders today. Like I want, you know, he really believed in the company and wanted to see them do well long term. So he made some of those harder decisions that didn't make him look as good today, but you know, would, would be good for the company long term. So the incentive, incentivization is 
a complex thing for sure. Right. And I think if we oversimplify, which I, I think the Seattle Times sort of did, at least some of the tweets I saw, oversimplifies that equation and takes out some of these more in-depth discussions about it. It, it just reads wrong. I think it's just too simplistic. You're taking a very complicated subject matter and a very intricate, uh, detailed, um, larger scale problem, and you're you're simplifying it down to a tweet to get responses. That's not where I think this should go. If you want to if you want to write a really in depth article about CEO pay and how we have gotten here, super. But I think it seems to miss some of the key points, like we talked about, and. Yeah, is the CEO of Boeing looking for long-term strength or short-term gain? At least right now, I think the feeling is that he's trying to restructure a lot of what's going on internally. So it's more of a long-term play. Good. Yeah, and of course, the news cycle today is not, you know, I don't know that you can write an article that doesn't, it's not just met with just pure outrage about, yeah, CEOs are paid properly today in 2022, right? The only thing you can really write to get to get clicks and reads is, yeah, CEOs are paid way too much compared to what you make, you know, Johnny average guy in America. Um, and it is hard, admittedly, for an employee to for any American to sit there and say, huh, I'm struggling. Inflation is hard. Rents and mortgages are higher than they've ever been. Um, and you're just sitting in your golden office, you know, CEO making 80 million dollars this year. And you're not raising my salary by even a dollar. Because you say you can't, but you can put ninety million in your pocket. That's, I think, what's really hard, and why there's so much anger towards billionaires, um, which I also don't feel is founded for the same reason. Like there's a lot of risk, and a lot of companies go out of business. Um, but also to these CEOs, who, you know, you don't need ninety million in your pocket in incentive in compensation, but your employees could probably use that if you spread it out. Again, but it's just it's just more complicated than that. It's complicated. I think it's more complicated than that. And uh, I think there's just some sort of general consensus, like being a CEO is an easy job. It's an extremely difficult job in most instances. Maybe there are some select jobs where you can you know, have champagne on your yacht every evening, but that's that's by far the rare case the, the the most cases that you're working 60 to 80 hours you're getting complaints all the time that you're giving up your family life that you're probably putting your health at risk in most cases a lot of these ceos die early uh there's a reason for that because the stress level is so high and their health is not it's not the number one priority <laughs> i think that's changing more recently though uh so you're giving up a lot to make more money it's a trade-off, and I think most people don't want to make that trade-off, and probably rightly so. I think it's a little crazy to want to do that job. Well, moving on. Uh, so there's a report that Vladimir Putin has signed signed a law that will make it possible for them to essentially nationalize all these planes, which is apparently 500-plus of them and worth over uh, $10 billion U.S. dollars. From Western leasing companies, and uh, who are obviously you know demanding these planes back, like hey, we've you know you've been sanctioned, like we want our planes back, and he's created this law that's saying they're essentially ours. Alan, is that how you interpret this? Yeah, they've just acquired all those aircrafts, and once they hit Russian airspace, they are never coming back, and they have just been uh, they're collateral for the state. I mean, this just gets back to the point where. You know, in one of the things I found interesting about the news, and obviously this is the first war that I've lived through, I'm 36, um, 
it's just some of the language that we use, you know, like when you talk about the word illegal or, or, or legal when, you know, invading another country, um, ultimately at some point things just come down to force, right? You could say, Hey, what you're doing is illegal. Well, if someone says, well, what are you going to do about it? You say, well, it's illegal. Well, you know, you're like, ultimately at some point people are just like, all right, well, come and get me, come fight me for it. Right. And that's kind of what's happening here. Would you, would you say? Uh, it definitely is. Uh, here's, here's my gun. <laughs> would you like to come get your airplane? That's what's happened. Yeah. That's, that's where we're at. Yeah. And it's crazy because, you know, you could sanction, you could sanction them, but ultimately, like you said, like someone's going to have to go back and get those planes if they want them. doesn't matter what you sue them, you take them to court, you, it doesn't matter. And that's what's really just found fascinating about this whole thing. I do think there's the possibility, although small, that some of those aircraft will sneak their way out of Russia. And the way that they'll do it is they'll make massive payoffs to pilots and mechanics and to get in that aircraft, fuel it up, pay off all the ground crew to shut up, pay off some air traffic controllers to shut up and get an airplane, fly it at, you know, a thousand feet above the ground and get it the heck out of there. If they really, really want it, that's what will happen. And uh, as much as Russia wants to be a communist society, a significant portion of it is still a black market society and we'll take the cash and we'll do it. Uh, I, I think there will be a couple examples of that. Whether we'll hear about them or not, I don't know. And whether Russia will take the initiative to try to shoot those planes down out of the air is yet to be determined. That's your, that's your downside risk, right? Is that Russia just says, uh, that's a stolen plane. It's, uh, it's been overtaken by a Ukrainian. It's going to fly it into the Moscow and hit the KGB headquarters. So therefore, we're going to shoot it out of the air. None of which is true, by the way. But that allows, gives Russia some cover to shoot an airplane, uh, especially an Airbus or a Boeing airplane, out of the air. If they do that, though, I mean, at, at this point, there's so many different uh, negative consequences for this because uh, the, the, the sanctions from Europe and the United States are having clearly an economic impact on on russia but it, it plays when you start to acquire assets that are not yours and then create quote-unquote legislation whatever that's worth to to then say we're never going to give these airplanes back well the, the chances of you buying an airplane again are zero unless you're going to buy it from china but i think china would also worry about it too why would they not worry about it they should uh, because if they can do it to Airbus, they can sure as heck do it to China. There's, there's, your, there's no upside for Russia in this. And if this war were to end tomorrow, there would be a five to ten year effect, a, a little bit of a, a hangover, I'll call it, of companies unwilling to do business in Russia just for this reason. So even though Russia Russia could have got those airplanes back and it sounds like they were bringing back super yachts and all kinds of expensive assets back into Russia or away from European and U.S. influence, that you could have done that and not got on television and signed a piece of paper and effectively had the same get to the same result. So it doesn't make... Why... Are you willing? Why are you? Why is Putin poking Europe? Why? I, I understand the whole Ukraine thing. Maybe it's not going so well. So this is part of that. The sort of make it look like he's in a 
stronger position politically than maybe he is. But the end result is you're, the Russian leadership keeps pushing itself further and further out where there's no return. You know, I, I thought a week ago there would have been a return. Now I'm not thinking there's going to be a return. If, if they do settle out, uh, the leadership in Russia is going to change. And I'm not sure that's a great situation either. But if they're not making it easy. Dan, does this make any sense? Like, why does this thing keep escalating so quickly? And how are you ever going to walk it back? Yeah, it, it's a it's a big question whether or not you know it gets so big that countries want to try to reclaim those planes. It's like uh, all these big companies are like, "Hey, government, we've lost a lot of money. We're going to lose a lot of jobs. Like, can you do anything? Can we get these back?" But does that mean going to war? It just yeah, it just seems like at this point Putin doesn't want to relinquish any amount of control and just to keep just punching, you know. So. Yeah, it's it's crazy to think about that. You know, you could have a successful plane leasing company, and now you're in serious trouble, and or you might be going under. I'm sure we'll probably see some country uh, some companies go under for this. It's very possible, but uh, some of these leasing companies are massive in size, and the number of airplanes we're talking about is n- probably not enough to disrupt the overall aircraft market. That may be sole leasing companies that get in trouble here, uh, but. I think if you were, if even five years ago, if you're leasing aircraft to Russia, you always have to wonder about the, the Putin effect and whether that was going to come and bite you or not. And um, most companies are pretty realistic. Uh, management's pretty realistic about the scenarios there. So they would have hedged their bets somehow, like insured the planes against <laughs> an acquisition like this just to protect the downside risk. Um, you know, I, I wonder if it's the insurance companies are the ones that are going to get hammered. That's that's the ones I worry about. So moving on to our EVTOL segment, um, Alan, let's talk about Joby first. So the NTSB has gotten their report out. Um, I don't know, is this the, the conclusive, like final report? We've seen some pretty detailed crash reports. This is just seems like a little kind of summary, uh, but it sounds like they had a uh, component failure. So take us through this a little bit. What what have we learned so far? Almost nothing, actually. And uh, obviously, Joby has pictures and video of the of the of the crash from inside and outside of the, uh, the aircraft. That they, they must. That's how the way they were flying it autonomously. They must have all that information. Uh, that that would go to the NTSB, obviously, to to review. And I think that they made an SEC declaration about. About that crash and the yeah the word was component we had a component failure <laughs> the discussion on the engineering world was was the component a wing or a propeller or a piece of electronics right those are hugely different things in terms of the consequence for the company if it's something structural like a wing uh, or, or an aerodynamic issue something that really gets to the heart of the aircraft design those are massively big setbacks in terms of trying to correct uh, because now you got to figure out what was the root cause. Did the change you make actually fix it? Uh, do you start? Do you hold all production line assemblies that's, that that you're in right now? Do you have to modify aircraft? They're already sort of halfway built. There's a lot of consequences here. And the the latest press release from Joby, which I think happened today or yesterday, had to do with they were going after their Part 135 like charter operator license and that they're progressing right along with their charter operator license from the FAA. Yeah. Okay. That's, that's a good press release, but what are you going to fly? <laughs> they're talking about having a part 135 
uh, operator's license in 2024, but you just crashed an airplane in the beginning of 2022. This would be really difficult to get to certification by 2024 if you have a major structural failure. If you had an avionics problem of some sort, some weird electrical problem, power short or something weird, um, maybe not so much, but boy, uh, to me, it, this whole thing starts to get really, the PR and it's not good. I think that's the problem. I, uh, you would like to see confidence coming from Joby. Like we, here's the problem. Here's the solution. This is how we're moving forward. This is our timeline to certification. This is how we're adjusting the schedule. This is the engineers are bringing on staff to try to correct this problem or, or to, to determine what's going on. None of that is visible right now, which which I understand if you're a software company in Silicon Valley, that makes infinite sense. Facebook never talks about its problems. Neither does Google, right? But in the auto, automotive and aviation world, I think you have to. I think you have to own up to what's going on just so you build confidence because the longer you let society dream up what a component failure is the more serious it becomes because the faster you respond to it it seems like it's less serious does, does that make sense like if, if joby come out say oh we had a crash uh but we had this flaky component we kind of knew it and we we're really pushing the envelope and something broke and like okay but we're not right we're we're just sort of radio silence that just makes everybody's imagination start to think about something that's really life altering for that program. Does that make sense, Dan? Yeah. I mean, in communication, this is the chief issue with text messaging is that when you, especially in like the dating, the dating world, right? You text someone and you say something and they don't, they don't, you know, you're responding in a, you know, back and forth time. And then you say something and then it goes hours and you're like, Oh God, wait, did I, did I offend him? Did I offend her? What what did I say? Let me backtrack. And you just start to ruminate and think, what what could they possibly be thinking? Oh, what have I done? Then you, and then oh yeah, sorry, I had to run to a doctor's appointment. Oh okay, okay. Like I mean, people do it all the time. Or you know, you, you someone says, call me, I need to talk to you, and you're like, oh god, car accident. Is everyone okay? And it's like, oh no, sorry, I just uh, you know, I just I was in I was in the car, just need you get you on the phone real quick. It's like any like you said, any time like that where communication is vague and unclear it leads humans into bad places. So I, I agree with you that this is a, an extent and ex, a PR public extension of that, where if you just say, Hey, yeah, we had a thing, you know, we're working really hard. Like you said, we've great engineering, but something wasn't quite right. This is what happened. You know, we're on it. That does build trust, you know, and right now it just, it seems murky. Yeah. There are protocols for this of ways you've seen successful companies handle these situations. SpaceX being one of them, right? Cause they had so many significant failures. I, I think you could use them as an example, right? Don't they have a greatest hits video of like the rockets exploding, like not landing properly. And yeah, people were fine with it. Uh, yeah. At the time they weren't, but they are afterwards because of the vision of, we understand what the problem is. We got a whole bunch of engineers working and, Musk will walk around and he would show in the factory and they see all the people working away diligently trying to solve this problem and say, hey, we're not panicking. Now, that was the Musk's approach. We're not panicking. We have an approach. We have an engineering team working on it. We're diligent about it. And so we're, we're this is our plan going forward. That calmed everything down. I'm not sure Joby's in that situation right now. 
maybe because it's their first accident that they're working through, that they're trying to figure out what to do. But boy, I would look at some test cases and then start making decisions like this week on responding to this accident for sure. Well, and let's let's compare that to what um, Airbus is doing. So Airbus's EVTOL project, the City Airbus, which haven't heard much about in the news cycle recently, they've just announced that uh, they've tapped Spirit Aero Systems to make their wings. So this seems like an interesting contrast in that obviously Joby Aviation is sort of a new company, right? They're not, they don't have jumbo jets. They don't have a 40 year history. They're a, they're a startup. Airbus is, is not. Um, and they've tapped this, you know, major vendor, Spirit Air Systems. Alan, what do they make for, for Boeing and Airbus now? They make fuselages and wings. And I mean, they make a lot of stuff, right? They're mostly into composite structures. Uh, so that's uh, Spirit and Belfast, which made makes nacelles, a lot of engine nacelles. And they're making, they are making the wing for the now Airbus A220, formerly the Bombardier C-Series. And their manufacturing capability and their engineering staff is just outstanding. Uh, and what Airbus is looking to do on an EVTOL is cut weight smartly, get right to to a, a group a, a group of engineers that understands how to manage weight in a composite structure and and yet make it manufacturable. There's not many groups on the planet that can do that as well, in my opinion, as as the group in Belfast can. So Airbus has like picked a, a really smart pathway here because it's in a sweet spot like if you talk about the sweet spot for belfast this is it they will they will crush this uh, as a as a project because it's not massively big it's something that they're kind of doing already with the a220 and they have all this technology there so they're going to deliver in my opinion a really lightweight durable structure for this electric application that's sort of if Airbus wants to accelerate a program, that's how you do it, right? You just get the superstars on it to to crank it out. That's what is about to happen, and I think it's a really smart move. Um, I've seen some more recent discussions from other EVTOLs about hiring in engineers or hiring hiring an engineering company to provide the sort of the structural analysis and some of the dirty work. I'm not sure that's a great way to go. You know, you're gonna, you're gonna. It's less money. It's probably it's less money, but in terms of getting it to a schedule, much more risky. In terms of getting to a product that you can sell, again, much more risky. Uh, that's that's the danger, right? You're probably gonna pay a little bit more for Belfast to do it. I'm sure they are, but it shortens the time scale down. And Dan, as you and I have talked about, getting first into this marketplace is a big deal. Being first in is huge and i think joby's going to be set back archer seems to be kind of struggling a little bit i'd say in flight test uh there's you're gonna have a lilium also it's behind i think everybody sees a sees a little window of opportunity here to to, to burst right through and just keep running if they can quickly get an airplane up in flight and start doing some flight testing with it man that'll just really sway the marketplace really sway it well and this was what i was kind of questioning back in the day was that are all these bigger companies that have very deep pockets just sort of biding their time and waiting to just swoop in as things start to as the fog starts to clear and and to me this seems kind of like a like a like a nascar race or an indy 500 race it's not necessarily who has the exact fastest car but how good are your pit stops 
how good is your pit crew, right? It's all the little things where you might lead laps four, you know, one through 450, but if you have a really bad breakdown and your pit crew really loses you a lot of time, you know, the veteran pit crew that you just chugged along in sixth place. Now you had a great pit stop at the very end, new tires, and now you, you know, you take it right. Obviously not a NASCAR or racing person, but that's generally how this works. Like you have a terrible, you know, terrible pit stop. That could be it for you. So it seems like, like you said, this might cost them a little more, but the fact that Spirit Air Systems has so much experience in this, that this is an easy task perhaps for them. I don't know if that's the right term to use, but it's well within their experience, obviously. Um, it seems like a, a slam dunk where even if they weren't ahead, you know, they're pulling closer to the lead now because they can just get the really great aircraft out there and maybe not have some of these issues that companies like Joby have had. Right. It's not the first to be into the marketplace or the first to introduce. It's the first to certify. That's the one. And if there's a cross the finish line first, and if there's a company that can rapidly get to the finish line, I think Airbus is that company They ha or Embraer. Those are really the two right now. Either one of those can really drive a certification schedule and get to something, especially on a smart aircraft, which they would seem as being simple because uh, their, their staff is so experienced with much more complicated aircraft. This would seem like an easy task for them. So uh, they, they could envision a shortened certification timeline and realistically stick to it, which just would blow everybody else out of the water, I think. So you get, you know, the, the archers and Jobies have to be really careful that if Airbus wants to push down on the accelerator pedal, they can, and they have the staff to do it. So if they want to get really serious about it, that program schedule gets compressed massively. And then we're flying around on Airbuses. And if you're Uber or uh, any of these other companies that wants to get into this aspect of ride hailing, you know, Airbus just says, hey, what's up, guys? We got the only certified craft. You want it? They're like, yep, we do. So, all right, how many you want? Here's the price. Um, do you want to negotiate or do you just want to go ahead and ink that right now? So, um, yeah, it's a big it's a big deal to be first in to certification whenever that starts to starts to happen. Totally. It's a, it's the game changer. It always is. All right. Well, that's going to do it for this week's episode of the Struck Aerospace Engineering Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Be sure to subscribe and share the show with a friend. Obviously, you'll find us on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, Stitcher. And please leave us a review. It always helps the show grow. So thanks again. And we will see you here next week on Struck. Strike Tape, WeatherGuard Lightning Tech's proprietary lightning protection for radomes, provides unmatched durability for years to come. If you need help with your radome lightning protection, reach out to us at weatherguardaero.com. That's weatherguardaero.com.